Sam Fulman happens to be my grandfather's brother right there. And I was reading books about him that were on my, I was like, I'm a legacy. My great uncle started the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. Little did I know, lo and behold. So I was, I think, destined to be a facial plastic surgeon from birth. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. It is the month of March, and the theme for the month is the influences. So, and that's proudly brought to us by Elegant. So, shout out to Elegant. Thank you for enabling this month of podcasts. And um, the reason why I've called it the influences is I've specially chosen friends and colleagues who I feel have a great influence in the world of rhinoplasty, both from a professional but also on the patient side of things. And today it's a great honor to have someone who's had New York bestsellers who is so influential on social media and is just like a breath of fresh air. And that's Dr. Stephen Dion. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to the chat. Okay, so let's kick this thing off. I, from, from the listeners and from my side, very interested to know, how did this journey start for you? Okay, well, that's, that's a long question, a long answer that's, to a short question. We love question. long answers. Um, and, um, you know, rhinoplasty is, is in my blood. And I think I, I can say that because not just in my blood, it's in my genetics. And if I tell you where that starts, I think I'll surprise you because it surprised myself. And that goes way back to when I was a young, a young boy on my desk were books. And in fact, I have them right behind me. You can see them right there. See those books? Yeah. Those books were on my desk when I was a young child. Those books were written by my great uncle. Now, I knew my great uncle was a doctor. I didn't know what kind of doctor he was, but I knew he was a doctor. And I was always in awe of him. I would read his books. As I got older and I decided to go into facial plastics, I was at University of Illinois where my mentors were Dean Toriyumi and, and uh, a young attending at the time and Dr. Tardy, Gene Tardy. And of course, we were awed by rhinoplasty. I decided I wanted to go into rhinoplasty and pla facial plastic surgery. And as I started reading more about the founding of the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, I learned about one of the founders whose name happened to be Sam Foman. Sam Foman happens to be my grandfather's brother, right there. And I was reading books about him that were on my, I was like, I'm a legacy. My great <laughs> uncle started the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. Little did I know, lo and behold. So I was, I think, destined to be a facial plastic surgeon from birth. That's amazing, eh? And now, yeah. so where, where do you live and what do you do at the moment? So I live in Chicago. Well, I, I, sh I shouldn't say that. I work in Chicago. I live in the world is more my answer because while I'm in Chicago two weeks out of the month, two weeks out of the month, I'm everywhere else. And I tend to spend a lot of time traveling the world. And that has always been, I've been an explorer by nature. I believe that there's archetypes. I believe we all have archetypes. We're either explorers, warriors, domesticators, or facilitators. And you can't be more than two of them. You can have two of them, one a major, one a minor. That's one of my theories. Wow. And I've come to the conclusion and the realization and the admission that I'm an explorer. So I enjoy exploring new things, whether it's ideas, whether it's locations, and or it's different people. So I like to explore and I'm always in a different continent or a different part of the world exploring something. And that's common to me. That's fascinating. Eh? So explain to me, how does that kind of fit into the whole Enneagram that you've just spoken about? Well, I think exploring in general um, is at the core, is at my core. As I mentioned before, it's an archetype. And I really believe that we, we exist within our archetypes. So when it comes to medicine, I've always been an explorer. 
when um and I think this particularly um goes back to rhinoplasty. When I first got started with rhinoplasty, there's ways that I learned about it, as do many of us, and I was automatically from the get-go exploring how can I make this procedure different for myself, not for anyone else, but yeah. and I've always gone into it and all my exploring is only for myself to try to do something that satisfies me, that makes me better who I am, and of course those who I who I who I connect with. Um, yes, I do write down pretty much and I record and I keep diaries of all that I do. And for those who enjoy, I'm happy to share whether it's my explorations into philosophy or into um, medicine or, or into the world. And then perhaps others, you know, find some nuggets of, of value in there. I should mention that when I was in college, I was a, a philosopher and religion minor. I studied, of course, biology because back then you had to be a science major to go into medicine. Yeah. But religion and philosophy was my passion in, in college. And I think I've come back to that quite a bit more as I've gotten older. But it's interesting that you say you're doing it just for yourself because in a way you're not really. I mean, the amount of training you're giving and through the publications and books and stuff, what excites you and the, your exploring is passed on to countless other people. Okay, so I think that's a great point. I love to sh I love to share my knowledge. I have no, I don't hold back at all. And if there's interest, then I share more. When I first went into practice, uh, there was a curious little product that came out the year I uh, the soon just recently before I graduated fellowship called Botox. And all of us know it so well now. But back then, it was a product that was kind of denigrated. Certainly was below the level of surgeons. And I was like, wow, this thing really works. And the satisfaction rate with patients is ninety five percent. How many things in life give satisfaction rate at 95%? Little to nothing other than maybe pizza. There's very <laughs> few things in life which give a satisfaction rate at 95%. Certainly in surgery and definitely not in rhinoplasty, can you guarantee or highly expect a 95% satisfaction rate? Botox did that. So I started adopting this product and it became my marketing. It became the way that I got people in the door because I would use Botox on them, make them happy, and then convert them to surgical patients. Yes. And I was able to prove that in a paper I published in 2007 that my first patients were Botox patients. Anyways, I became a big leader in non-surgical treatments, yes. not because I was had this immense interest in doing botulinum toxin or treating wrinkles, but because it was a great way to get my practice busy at the time. And yes. I started doing a lot of work with it. And lo and behold, the product was fantastic. And the satisfaction rate was great. So I started speaking to surgeons about non-surgical treatments. And certainly that wasn't met with a lot of favor back in the early 2000s. Yes. And I spent a lot of time, you know, studying it, researching it, doing work with it. And I got invited to a lot of dermatology conferences at that time and spoke a lot with dermatologists. I became very friendly with dermatologists. Now, of course, I'm engaged to a dermatologist. So I had a, I have a strong cushion there where I brought them these concepts along with surgical anatomy and surgical thinking. And that's before the field started coming together. And now the fields have started coming together in many different ways as we have common interests. And now I find myself speaking to audiences that include dermatologists, plastic surgeons, yes. oculoplastic surgeons, various, various specialties. And now a lot of people want to hear about this, but it wasn't always the case. It certainly wasn't 20 years ago when I was writing and talking about it. But the, the good thing is, I mean, you bring a gravitas as a facial plastic surgeon in there, which is, which is not many people who can say that. I, I wanna, before I go to the next topic around this, I had a, such an interesting chat to Alvin D'Souza, who's the current president of the European Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. And he said that almost all the rhinoplasties that he does intraoperatively, he also gives them Botox so that his results are even better afterwards. I haven't heard that before. What are your thoughts about that? 
Botox into the forehead or into the nose? Into the, the muscles around the nose. Well, I mean, I, I haven't done that. I haven't, I haven't heard of that. Now, could there be a value? I can foresee a value. Perhaps you have some reduction on the strain of the nose if the muscles are relaxed. Maybe. I, it's a, I haven't seen that or even recognized the theory behind that. You also, there's a curious little effect you give with botulinum toxin is you reduce the sebum production. You reduce oil. Okay. And many of us know that early in the post-op period, especially when we do a large open rhinoplasty in a thick skin patient, you get that increased oil production. The skin swells. So, and it's anti-inflammatory, so I could see perhaps a value for it. I'd love to see a study on that. It'd be hard to do, but I'd love to see a study on that. I think that's really interesting. No, it was very interesting. Okay, so then the next thing, I mean, it's so interesting that as, as Botox was released, you're kind of getting into private practice, et cetera. But now what about the fillers, the HA fillers, et cetera? I'm so interested to know, because I know you, you're a world leader on that. How have you incorporated that into the practice? And tell us a little bit around that. So a great question. I think this is a much bigger, broader perspective, and one in which I think as facial plastic surgeons, we have to address. It's not that we don't address. We have to address it. And that's the enormous, enormous demand and interest in non-surgical treatments. It's growing at a 10 times clip rate greater than surgical. So as facial plastic surgeons, we are experts in the face. We really know and understand the face. And as surgeons, we understand the deeper anatomy to the face. There's no reason why we shouldn't be deeply involved in the progression of this field at every level. And certainly we shouldn't be dismissing it. We should welcome it because I become a better surgeon. I become a better artist. I become a better doctor the more non-surgical I do in my practice, hands down. And the reason why is if a patient comes into my office and I put in filler into their into the regions of their face, I see the results immediately. Mm -hmm. Anatomically, I can tell, yes, that patient looks great right away. And I learn the artistic benefits of the impacts or the influences that I have with the non-surgical treatments. If I do a facelift or a rhinoplasty, I do it. It may look wonderful, but that, that part of the face is within isolation. I do it in the surgical field. It looks good there. But of course, you know, it's not the end all be all result. I don't see my result for six weeks, perhaps, or later until the swelling comes down. And it's hard to know the immediate impact of your of, of your intervention onto the outcome of the patient. So you don't learn, you don't get that immediate feedback. You don't learn how influential your, your treatment is into the aesthetics of the face. With non-surgical treatments, you learn right away. You become a better artist, you get that immediate feedback. And there's a whole art, there's a whole philosophy on this, on Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who's the New York Times bestselling author and the Nobel Prize winner. And he talks about heuristics. You know, we think something's right or we think something's wrong, but the reality is until we're able to get immediate feedback on it, we don't really know. Patterns develop quicker if you get immediate feedback. So when you do non-surgical treatments, you get immediate feedback. You see that result wow. mm -hmm. and you're like, wow, that looks really good. That then influences your surgical procedure. Then you go into surgery and you're like, you know what? Maybe I'll put a little fat here or a little fat here or a little something right here to get that up. Or maybe I'll lift <laughs> the smash differently because you know that's gonna highlight the eyes. It's gonna make a difference. We struggle in surgery in my opinion, and we have traditionally, where we focus on one thing, especially rhinoplasty mm -hmm. surgeons like the nose. I remember I gave a talk, it was years ago at a rhinoplasty conference, and they asked me to speak about the nose, and I talked about the influence of the nose on the lips, because I had done a clinical trial where I showed if you put in a caudal septal extension graph, you influence the projection and the rotation of the lip. That was something we never, I never heard about that no. prior to me publishing it, but I started noticing when I was doing filler studies, that if I put filler under the nose, the lip was affected. I'm like, does the same thing happen with caudal septal extension grafts? And yes, 
it affects the lips. And it's like, wait a second, when we do a rhinoplasty, we're not just influencing the nose, but we're influencing the surrounding characteristics of the face. And we have to put it all into context. We don't do that enough, in my yeah. opinion. And I think non-surgical opens up that doorway to do it. So that's one important point. It makes you a better, a better physician. Two is it increases your practice. It opens the breadth of your practice and opens up the funnel and brings more people in. If you do these procedures well, patients will come to you for that. Traditionally, these are recurring patients, which then leads to a larger practice base. As surgeons, traditionally, we operate. Goodbye. We say goodbye. Yeah, we hope yeah. they come back in the future for another surgical procedure or bring in a relative or a friend. But that may not happen today. If you want to keep that funnel of patients coming in, non-surgical treatments has a recurring revenue stream and a recurring reason for them to come back to your office. It's good for the health of the practice. So I can go into much more depth on both of these, but I think that's a good overview to, to no, better understand my, my the reason why I like non-surgical treatments. So so this, the next kind of comment is to try and figure out why is the uptake from the surgeons possibly less than it should be in terms of fillers and Botox? Why I say that is in a way, as like specialist plastic surgeons or otolaryngologists, there's sometimes this fight of we the surgeons. And in that moment, the aesthetic physicians who might not be specialists have taken this thing and flown with it. And now the guys are saying, yo, yeah. but... I'm a surgeon, so I have to cut. I can't go below myself and stoop down there and just kind of do a temporary um, fix of a problem. How? So this is my question. How do you deal with it? Like, I'm hesitant to say almost arrogance from surgeons to say, no, I don't need to do that. I, I'm going to cut and I'm going to get a permanent great result. Let me tell you a little story that I think helps illustrate this. When I first moved to Chicago, I was so excited to move into this posh, nice neighborhood. And there was a country club nearby and I wanted to join the country club. Actually, I didn't want to do it. My, my wife wanted at the time wanted to join it, but we couldn't get in because we didn't meet the criteria. And we and it was super expensive to get in. And they want us to pay this huge down payment. You had to get recommendations. Anyways, they didn't accept us. Fast forward 15 years later, the country club's falling apart. They beg us to join and they're taking anyone who'll come in. My point being is that when you create these elite societies, no matter what elite society it is, eventually you elite yourself into extinction. It's a strong warning. And I think we should realize that when we want to become just a small little pocket that just specializes in one thing, we risk becoming extinct. You've got to adapt to the environment. Everyone knows that you adapt to the environment to stay healthy. It's your young people that are coming in. If we don't have people, I spoke at a conference recently, a surgical conference. I was one of the youngest doctors speaking. It's a problem. Yeah. It's a problem. If we're going to bring young people up, we have got to embrace the ways they're doing things and understand it. Non-surgical certainly is a big component of what we do. Now, if we want to sit around and talk about one procedure, great. I, I love to do that. I love to shoot the barrel with my friends and chat about the things we love doing surgically. But it's not going to benefit the health of the program or the health of the specialty if we don't start welcoming in these other thoughts and ideas. It's, yeah. it's critically important. There's that surgical arrogance, which I think exists and has traditionally, but I think it's going away a little bit. I certainly see with the younger generation, it's more open to a lot of things that certainly I think is way beyond what I consider appropriate, but I'm always open to listening to it because I think it's important. I think it is. We have to, we have to look at these non-surgical uh, uh, options and treatments. My practice is 50% non-surgical. 50% is a big percentage yeah. of my practice, which is non-surgical. But you know what? When I go on the road, my practice is still running. I have injectors. So even if I don't do it, I've trained injectors to do it. I have a younger doctors. I have a dermatologist on staff. I have, other I have other people here who will go ahead and do those treatments, which keeps the practice healthy. That's awesome. Okay. 
So there are two other things I'm very interested to know. I want to know about resilience and I want to know about balance. How on God's green earth do you manage to have two weeks away from your practice and you're happy and it works? What's your secret behind that? What are you doing when you're taking time off? Well, I, I don't call it time off because I'm always working and any business owner is never taking time off. There's no such thing as vacation when you're a business owner, in my opinion, because you think about it 24-7. So I, I never consider time off, but I've, I've structured my, my, my professional life to one and into which I can do many of the things that are my responsibilities outside the office. Now, I've been in practice for 20 years, 22 years, so it certainly wasn't like that the first 10 or 15 years, but I've continuously gone that route. So I have other physicians I work with in the office that do their part, but I also am managing a lot of the administrative uh, impact of the of the office. I'm also I also have a research organization, so I started doing research early on, and that's grown quite a bit. And it's it's nice to 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 have that as part of my practice. So I also manage that. And then I love teaching, and I've made teaching something that's become a big part of my existence. So I, I am able to also teach. Now this all comes with the caveat of two things. One is. You have to decide what works for you. Have I taken a financial hit? Of course. I could certainly make a lot more money if I sat home and did facelifts all the time. I could. There's no doubt about it. I wouldn't be as happy as, as a person. I wouldn't feel as fulfilled if I was sitting home doing facelifts all the time or rhinoplasties. I, I enjoy when I explore a new country and a new population of people. And I really love writing now. Writing has become something that I, I can't wait to get somewhere to go on a writing retreat to just think and write. So that for me fulfills me. And then when I come back, like today, I'm back in the office. I can't wait to see my patients stay and to operate. But when I'm here over a longer period of time, it starts to weigh on me and I need, yeah. I need a little time away yeah. to do other things. But while I'm away, I'm always doing something that benefits the practice. Rarely, I, I, I don't think I'm ever on vacation yeah. because I always have my computer open. I'm always doing something. And today, so much of the world is done remotely yeah. that I do a lot of my conferences and teaching and I do quite a bit of consulting now that's all done remotely. Sure. Okay, so t tell us a little bit more about your books that you've written. So um, I I've written five books. Um, some I've written business books. I, uh, I wrote a lot about my first five years or seven years in practice when I had a meteoric rise in a time period when doctors didn't market. It was considered very um, inappropriate or gauche. <laughs> and I was, I was told not to, I mean, I remember when I, I went to Dr. Tardy, and I'm like, Dr. Tardy, I think I'm going to get a website. And he looked at me, he's like, hmm. Well, okay. It was like, to get a website back in my day was considered like way too much marketing because what we were supposed to do was advertise in the yellow pages and go to the hospital and sew up, you know, dog bites and hopefully get their mothers to come in for facelifts. That was the way we were told to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of said, well, that doesn't make sense to me. I want to try something different. How about a website? <clears throat> so I, I wrote about my version of how I got busy back in my day. So that was a really popular book. I never thought it would be popular, but that was early on. I wrote that, I think, in the early 2000s. I also wrote a, I also wrote a book about Botox and Restylane, which, um, which Restylane was the first filler that come out into the U.S. market. And I wrote about how to get busy with those products, and those were a big hit in the early 2000s. I wrote a book about beauty in the late 2000s, which didn't do very well. That kind of fell flat. And then in 2014, everything changed when I wrote a New York Times bestseller. And my life changed. And there's no doubt I'm a different person after the book. And I strongly encourage everyone out there to write a book. It doesn't have to be a New York Times bestseller. But what a book does is when you go out there and write the book, when you write your story, because every book is an autobiography. I don't care if it's a textbook, a children's book, or, or, or a philosophical book. Whatever it is, it's always an autobiography. You can hear the author's voice. You can hear the author. You know the author. 
<clears throat> you come out on the pages of the book. Everyone should write a book because when you go out there and you write the book, you it causes you to think differently and to think more deeply about your convictions and your thoughts. You can't just write something, and all of us know that who write research papers, you can't just make a statement without backing it up. It forces you to do research. But when you write something <clears throat> about, me, about the way you think, it forces you to look back into your mind. Why do I think that way? And as you start examining that, you start taking a deeper look into your own psyche and your own origin. You're like, huh, that's why I think that. And if you're, if you're honest with yourself, the book becomes therapeutic. But it also gives you a straighter logic to your thoughts. So you don't go out there and just spew words. You're like, this is why I think it. And you have a reason for thinking it. That's what a book does. So my last book, I took four years to write, which took me longer than graduating, you know, getting through medical school. And I traveled the world and I wanted to explore attraction and beauty because as a rhinoplasty surgeon, like everyone who listens to this, I've done results where I thought were just fantastic. The patient looked great. I was thrilled and the patient's unhappy. I'm like, but you look great. I gave you exactly what you wanted. Yes, doctor, but it doesn't look good. I'm not happy. Conversely, I had people who I was like, oh, geez, I wish I went a little bit better. There's still a little residual bump. Patients thrilled. They're so happy. They look beautiful. They walk around as if they are the queen of Sheba. So I realized that there's something, there's a disconnect. I have my objective goals, make the, make the nose perfect, but that wasn't the patient's goals. Something was missing. We weren't being taught, understand what the patient wants. So I wanted to understand beauty. So I traveled the world to see the cultural differences in beauty, to see the origin of beauty. So I went to countries, I, I, spend, I would spend a week at a time or a little bit less, if, whatever I had. I went, to, I went to Africa, I went to Asia, I went to Iceland, I went everywhere I could be. And I would go and explore the different parts of the country, understand the beauty aspects of that country, really try to dive deep into the philosophies of that country. I went back to my religious roots, my philosophical roots, and I wrote a book on it that combined the neuroscience, neuroscientists, you know, the what, how our brains incorporate beauty and perceive it as far as the aesthetics, which I knew. I understand that, that as well, too. And then the philosophy of beauty. So those are three topics I brought together and came out with my book called Subliminally Exposed, which really became the science of beauty. And that was something that I was passionate about, but it really gave me a unique, but a very strongly convicted philosophy on the science of beauty. And I ended up teaching an undergraduate course at a university here on the science of beauty, which went for about seven years, which I really enjoyed teaching undergraduates about the science of beauty. But it allowed me to think differently about the procedures I do. I no longer had a goal to make a perfect nose. My goal now became to make a perfect person, to make them as happy as possible and to achieve their goal of making them feel more confident because it became clear to me that my outcome was not a perfect nose, but a happier patient, a more confident patient, someone who thought they were beautiful, even if they weren't. So sometimes achieving that goal is surgery. Sometimes it's non-surgical. Sometimes it's skincare, and sometimes it's nothing at all. That patient needs to walk out more confident. And then when that happened, my practice grew and I became a happier physician. Sure. What is the title of the 2014 New York Times bestseller? Um, it's called Subliminally Exposed. Subliminally Exposed, yeah. So it's basically what we find beautiful really has a subconscious component to it. You know, so now all my research, or I should say in the back, the research I fund or the research I enjoy doing, I do based on uh, understanding what's influencing attractiveness or what are between two people. So for instance, right now we're studying masks. How much of an impact does a mask have on what we find attractive? And it's so interesting. Our preliminary findings right now are that we find people more attractive with a mask on than without a mask. Wow. I was like, really? 
So we look at their eyes and we find them incredibly attractive. We imagine what the rest of their faces when they take their mask off. We're like disappointed yeah. <laughs> is what I'm Ooh. thinking. But it, so we're doing a larger clinical trial now with 300 observers because our preliminary results, are, I was like, really? The most attractive people in my office are some of the older men who you see their eyes that are friendly. So something's really going on with that. So we're studying that. We're also studying attraction via the via Zoom or via video conferencing because I believe something is lost. Last year, <clears throat> I published a paper that blind people, physically blind people who have loss of vision can detect beauty. How is that possible? It blew my mind when someone who's completely blind can detect that the person sitting in front of them three feet apart is beautiful. How does that happen? Well, it turns out, and this is what we, we surmised in our study, is that we have neural crest cells in our anatomy, in our, in our skin, that communicate, that sense. And beauty is something that can be sensed biologically when we stand next to someone. When we're next to them, we've, we're influenced by things other than our vision, other than our smell. The five senses we all learned are not the only way we communicate. We communicate in, we communicate by physically standing next to someone in a way we haven't yet defined. And I'm saying it exists. It's like dark matter. It exists. We just haven't defined it yet. But I was able to prove that blind people and derm surgery called it one of the most interesting papers of 2020. It was this paper that came out on blindness. So now we're studying it, the same concept through Zoom, because I think what we've all realized during COVID is that, yes, this is great to virtually connect, but something's lost. Something's missing when you're not interacting with those people next to you. So in the same way, I want, like if you're in a room full of people, suddenly you lock eyes with somebody completely on the other side that you find attractive. How, how does that work? Okay, I have a lot of theories on this and I've looked deep into this. I think it's somewhat, it's genetic. I do believe that we have genetic connections that are based on our MHC proteins, which sit on our um, on every cell. And I believe that we can sense another person's genetics. Now, is it pheromonal? Perhaps. But if there's someone's far away or they're wearing makeup, then maybe a pheromonal is not going to be good enough. But I think there's things that we can see in others that are genetically, they were genetically attracted. We can't explain it. But I've written a paper on um, epigenetics of attraction and I've showed results or examples, mostly anecdotal, but a lot, quite a few now, and they keep coming out more and more of people who are attracted to someone who they've never met before, or at least they say they've never met. But I believe that many times someone that we are attracted to, we don't remember, but they've imprinted on us at another time period. We've passed them somewhere. We've seen them somewhere. Familiarity breeds attractiveness. We are attracted to things that are more familiar to us. So, for instance, we're, we're, we're accustomed to a diet of faces that we see all the time. If we see a face that's similar to that, and that oftentimes is a face similar to your own, then you're immediately attracted to it because our, that's, what we're, that's what we like. We don't like something that's very foreign from us. But we also don't, aren't attracted to something that's too similar to us. Where that number exists is probably about 22%. In other words, we like to see 22% of ourselves in someone else. So that is one of the ways in which we're attracted to something. Someone may resemble us. So maybe they have a genetic history that's similar to ours that we immediately become attracted to them. And we don't realize it, but that works genetically. Along those lines... Um, there could be other reasons, as I said, imprinting. We've seen them. We've passed somewhere. So I have many couples who come to me. They're like, they'll hear me speak on this. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. Me and my wife, you know, we went to camp 20 years ago. We never saw each other. And then we went back in our history and we realized that we actually went to camp together. Yeah. Or we went to college together. We never met each other. No, you did meet each other. You just don't remember that you were at 7-Eleven one day and you passed and you opened the door for her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So right now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm engaged to a woman, a dermatologist who's a little bit my junior, and it turned. she lives in San Diego, I live in Chicago. But you're not going to believe this. We went to the same grammar school, 
the same secondary school, the same high school, the same med school, the same residency. We never met. We're 14 years apart. But yet I can't believe that somewhere in our same little neighborhood, which is a small town of 17,000 people outside Chicago, she grew up in the same neighborhood as me and we never met. There's got to be something there yeah, 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 that yeah. we met. So I've been exploring that and I have, you know, it's a lot of fun to explore. And in fact, her family comes from Spain. So we're actually going to where her family's from because I'm so deep into understanding this. My family's from Morocco. My family escaped Spain in the, in the 15th century. I'm like, is it possible our families at one time were friendly in Spain? So we're going back and looking at that because these are the types of things that I like to explore that interest me these days. I mean, it doesn't take away from my surgical practice. Yeah, I love yeah, surgery. Yeah. I love what I do on the day, day by day basis. But wow, my life is so much richer. My practice is so much more engaging. And uh, it's so much more fun when I can go back and look at things like this. Yeah, it's fascinating. What an interesting conversation. Okay, so for listeners around the world, if they want to try and reach out and I don't know, come and visit you in Chicago or, um, yeah, come and listen to you speak and see what you do. Is, is that a possibility for anybody? Or is it more like, I'm going to sure. phone you um, and come and do I, a We welcome people all the time. Yeah. I, I'm all, my practice is always open to anyone. Um, anyone, obviously in our, especially, I don't, I don't take interlopers, but anyone who comes in and spend time with us, we welcome them. You know, in the past I was, I was here more. So now that I'm gone two weeks a month, I, I, I encourage someone to, to check with my schedule first. But even if they if they're in Chicago and they want to see my office and the way it runs and the people we work with, that they're they're welcome to come visit. We do a lot of non-surgical, so that's a big part of what we do. And I end up teaching more on that. While I think I would love to teach on rhinoplasty and those things as well, there's so many experts out there who do teach on it. My philosophy is one of minimally invasiveness, which that's why I'm so happy to see the preservation of rhinoplasty become more popular because I, I've a long time ago, I think 15 years ago converted almost completely to endonasal mm -hmm. and that's my passion is endonasal rhinoplasty it's very hard to teach as as many people who do it know and i have a fellow uh, facial plastics fellow every year who i try to teach them endonasal rhinoplasty because i think while every patient um could potentially get an open rhinoplasty not every patient necessarily needs an open rhinoplasty and i think if we can do closed rhinoplasty and do it well i think it makes a huge difference on uh, the patient outcomes. So I think philosophically, it, I'm very much aligned with endonasal rhinoplasty. And so anyways, I love to teach that, so I'm happy to, but there are a lot of other doctors out there who teach it very well. But I'm happy awesome. to, to show my, my ability that. So if anyone wants to come watch, please do and uh, spend time with me. So they can come, they can contact me through email, which I'm, I'm happy for you to give it out, or they can contact my office. Awesome. Okay, so the last question I have, because the You've given me one more thing. Also, people follow me on social media. Usually there's a lot of the stuff I'm writing. So I've now, you know, I've written books in the past and I was actually starting to work on another book. And then I realized something. I have like 100,000 followers or something like that. More of my message or my thoughts get out via social media today than writing a book. I mean, I, I can't get a book to get that many people to read it. So I think now as I write, I'm trying to drop them down to aphorisms and put them onto social media. Sometimes it's a long read. But for those people who like to think a little bit differently or go on mind benders or mind twisters, they may want to follow what I write. Okay, so you've given us like this huge meal to enjoy and, and think through and go like mull over. The last topic or question I want to ask you about is, so dial back 20 years ago, your first, your website. We're sitting now in March 2022. We've had COVID. The world's changing so quickly. What are the good and what are the bad things about social media in your mind, both from a patient perspective, but also from colleagues, guys who kind of are, are, are interested in different things, the, the good and the bad in your mind? So I think that's a great question. Um, 
there's no doubt I see the social media addiction a problem. I mean, I have children. Anyone who has children can see the influence that it has. Our brains have not yet adapted to this onslaught of information in a short period of time. And it, it creates a ton of anxiety. There's, I don't think there's any question to the level of anxiety it creates. And try to pull a phone out of a kid. It's like taking a drug out of the hand out of a druggie. It's, it's really an issue. And, there, and I think that we need to have some controls on it, especially for young people who aren't used to it. But even older people who get so into the phones and the immediate disposable media information, I think they struggle with long attention spans. And I think it's completely changing the way we're teaching, the way we're learning, um, the way we're interacting. And I, so I don't see that all as, um, well, I don't see it all good. Having said that, we always adapt. And one generation always looks to the next generation and thinks that they're going to, you know, dis destroy themselves. So I have to recognize that there's some to that. When I came out and practice and I first went into practice and I did a website and I had a marketing person that was considered very rogue, which by today's standards is, is benign. So I have a young physician who I took on, a facial plastic surgeon who's in his fourth or fifth year now. He is all over TikTok. So for those of you who don't follow TikTok, it's another social media platform. I don't really, it's not me, it's young people dancing around in my opinion, but he has really marshaled a huge following on there. He's got 200,000 followers. And if I told you this, you may not believe me, but he's getting 130 consults a week from TikTok. Nothing in the history of humanity has ever been as influential as social media has. A single person become famous in their garage with no cost tomorrow with a message. That has never existed in the history of humanity. And that is the power of social media. And for a business person or a marketing person or a plastic surgeon or a scientist who wants to get their message out, you don't need any more to go through traditional media. You can do it yourself. It takes creativity. It takes authenticity. Now, do I, does that appeal to me? No, TikTok does not appeal to me at all. When, and the way many people are showing themselves and physicians who are in bikinis putting on makeup or doctors who are showing their muscles I'm like, really? Do patients come in because they want to see what you ate for dinner or where you went on vacation or how your workout's going? And the answer to that question, I think, is proving yes, despite the fact that I think it doesn't make sense to me and I struggle with it. My colleague who does a dance around the office gets 130 people come in. He spent one day on TikTok doing, saying profanities while he's snapping back and forth, talking about meditation and saying FFFF, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know if that's appropriate. So I'm getting my colleagues saying, do you see what your young partner is doing? And I'm like, yeah, and you got to shut that down. Well, needless to say, I didn't. I let him go with it because he's incredibly successful with it. He's seeing a lot of, he's seeing a ton of patients, but his patients aren't my patients. His average patient's 27. My average patient's 47. My patients would never go to him and don't like what he does. But conversely, his patients would never come to me. So who am I to tell him how to advertise and market to his patient base as long and people are coming in? So my general, my general instruction to my fellows, my residents, and to him is push the envelope, but know where the boundaries lie. That's great. Yeah. Even if it's such an interesting conversation, man, I, I feel like I need to have like a two hours of sitting here and chatting to you, but it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, on behalf of the people from around the world, I mean, we, we, we've been now into 70 countries. I'd like to say thank you for myself as well. It's so stimulating chatting to you. Um, yeah, I look forward to finally seeing you in person soon. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. And Elegant, thank you for guys for making this possible that we can actually record this and send it around the world. So thank you for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been fun to chat with you. Hopefully we'll do it again soon.